0: Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go.
1: Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name's Nash Nikolich, and my guest today is Paul Fitzgerald, who is the head of the School of Medicine and Psychology at the Australian National University. He is a qualified psychiatrist, has an MBBS degree, Master's of psychological medicine and research phd from monash university paul has conducted an extensive range of more than 20 clinical trials especially focused on the development of novel brain stimulation treatment options including repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation for patients with depression schizophrenia obsessive compulsive disorder ptsd autism and alzheimer's disease he has had continual nh MRC grant support for over 20 years and over $10 in research support in the last five years. Paul has published several books, over 500 journal articles, and been cited over 20,000 times. Paul has established multiple clinical RTMS services, founded several devices and clinical service companies, and the first RTMS training program in Australia. Paul led the national application to the Department of Health at the federal level, uh, federal government level, and this resulted in Medicare funding $283 million in support for the first year of RTMS therapy for patients with depression in 2021. I deeply enjoyed this conversation with Paul as TMS is something that I have had very little understanding around, very little knowledge of, and it was absolutely wonderful and a pleasure to have Paul on the show to discuss all things TMS. Enjoy. Paul, a big thank you for coming on to the show today. You're most welcome. Look, I'm really interested to find out more about this this, this space around TMS, transcranial magnetic Um, stimulation. It's something that I know very little about. Uh, I certainly know about it. I've I've had plenty of clients come to me and and discuss it and how that's going and the like, Uh, but I don't know anything about the research, the mechanisms at play, or at least the theories behind it. So I thought, what an amazing opportunity and, and thank you for coming on so we can discuss this further.
0: More than happy to talk about it.
1: Maybe before we begin, I, I can ask you how you got into this space. I know that you're a trained psychiatrist, but uh, how did you find you know, your way um, into this area?
0: It goes back a fair way. So I did my uh, psychiatry training in the 1990s, and I, had, um, I was fortunate enough to have an opportunity to spend the last year of my training um, in Toronto at the um, what was called the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health at the University of Toronto. And I wasn't doing work with TMS. TMS was very much in its infancy um, during that time. But whilst I was in Toronto, the centre and my supervisor got a TMS machine. So um, I pretty much spent the last four or five months of that um, fellowship every Wednesday afternoon playing around, trying to work out how the machine worked. It wasn't really we weren't really trying to develop ways of using it in a treatment context there were um, some interesting things that you can do with TMS in terms of investigating brain function. And my main area of interest at the time was thinking about what was going on um, in the brains of people with schizophrenia. And so that was the sort of focus of what we were trying to do. Um, so I got exposed to it. I understood you know, what the sort of technology was. I came back to Melbourne and uh, where I was living after that and working in uh, mental health service there and wanted to continue with research. Um, and I of had two choices. There was the other work that I'd done in, in um, Canada was with pet imaging. Um, and when I got back to Melbourne, there was only one pet scanner, I think in the whole country, which was in Victoria, but it was about, it was right on the other side of Melbourne. It was about a, from memory, about $3,000 for a single pet scan. And um, it just seemed to be impossible to get a, a, a line of research up in that area where we it just seemed more feasible to try to do work with TMS. So managed to sort of cobble together a little bit of money over time, some borrowed equipment, set up a facility, and sort of went really went from there. Again, mainly focused on trying to investigate brain function, but it was right at the, um, the dying days of the um, Kennett government. And Jeff Kennett, um, you know, sort of later became well-known for his Role in establishing Beyond Blue, um, I think had come back, not had sort of become in, enthused by the need to to to, um, to develop treatments or 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 to expand knowledge around depression, and um, we were fortunate enough to be able to put a proposal to the government relatively soon before they left office and got a little bit of money for a, a TMS machine, and. Um, and we're mainly wanting again to use that in in people with schizophrenia, but felt obliged to actually do some research with depression because that's what we had promised the government we would do, and and so we started to uh, a small clinical trial, and lo and behold, people started to get better and get better really quite dramatically, and and I suppose it's you know really from there that things kind of you know developed over the years. That was really the starting point.
1: Mm, mm. Can you talk can you talk me through a little bit about uh, what TMS is because obviously there's a treatment Avenue and there's an investigatory sort of Avenue as well and and both uh, avenues can be used with TMS to talk me through what what TMS is how does it work because um, uh, I, I I genuinely have no idea I don't even know what the machine looks like uh, yeah. so um, complete complete novice.
0: So there is a, a machine that sort of sits in the room next to the patient. I suppose it's a bit like a, a very large, oversized briefcase, you know, sort of rectangular machine. It's connected to um, what's commonly caused, called, called a coil, which a lot of patients describe as, you know, one of those an old-fashioned head of a key. It's sort of, it's, um, sort of this figure of eight shape. And that um, sits on... person's head it doesn't actually have to touch you but usually just sits gently on the head the machine effectively is gathering a lot of electricity and switching an electrical current through that coil on and off very quickly the current is um, shielded from the body there's no direct electrical stimulation but the switching of that current on and off generates a strong magnetic field The magnetic field is very focused and very local. It only um, goes into the brain a couple of centimetres. It stimulates an area of the brain of of sort of one to two square centimetres, so a fairly local area. And the basic principle is when you switch an electrical current on and off, it generates this magnetic field. The magnetic field passes through us without any resistance. It's like why you can have an MRI scan to take pictures of your body. And um, when a magnetic field that is switched on and off very quickly is applied to something that conducts electricity, it will actually induce an electrical current. So we kind of start off with an electrical current, reduce a magnetic field, and then the magnetic field goes back in the opposite direction and induces an electrical current. And our brains are full of things that conduct electricity, which are nerve cells. And so it's inducing an electrical current in nerve cells in the local area that's stimulated, and that's strong enough to actually make those nerve cells fire. So the easiest demonstration of that is if you put the coil over the area of the brain that controls, say, the muscles in your hand and you turn it up to a high enough level, it will make the nerve cells underneath the coil fire, which will send a signal down to cause a muscle twitch in the hand, for example, which is kind Mm -hmm. of very weird because this thing, you feel a tapping sensation on your head, you get a sensation because it also stimulates the nerves in your scalp, um, but you get this sort of involuntary twitch um in the in the muscle of the area that you're stimulating Um, and that can be useful if you know these machines were originally invented because neurologists wanted to be able to track you know the the signal the nerve signal from the brain down to you know the hand or the leg or wherever it might be but that's not necessarily sort of how or why it's used in a treatment context in a treatment context we're applying lots and lots of those pulses and Somewhat simplistically, you know, the brain works on a use it or lose it principle that the more we stimulate particular pathways, the more they become strengthened. Um, We can change their activity levels. And so we're targeting an area of the brain and an area of circuitry that we think is involved in depression, and we're stimulating with thousands of these pulses over time, and we're trying to change the sort of activity levels um, in those um, pathways to bring
1: about you know therapeutic benefit, and, and and it's on that concept of use it or lose it. So if if, if the magnetic impulses, or, or suppose the the, the the switching, the on and off of the current which creates the magnetic impulse, that localizes or is targeted at uh, uh, brain centers that are responsible for mood i'm i'm assuming or maybe behavior activation or other areas that uh, are generally associated with a desire to say if they are not being used very much by the person who's in a depressive state will that have a an effect to activate that whole system and and see some positive change in in general is that kind of right
0: yeah that's a reasonable summary so the the main the most common target for TMS treatment is what we call the left prefrontal cortex so the sort of frontal area of the brain on the left that was identified and originally targeted because early brain scanning studies tended to show that that area of the brain was underactive in people who were depressed now um and and so that was combined with a type of TMS which seems to increase brain activity. So we've got an underactive area of the brain, a technique to increase brain activity. Let's put two and two together and see if that produces benefit. And fortunately it did. We don't think as, I certainly don't think as, um, that that is all of the mechanism of action, because when we make um, a big bunch of nerve cells in these frontal areas of the brain fire, that area of the brain is very strongly connected to most of the other areas of the brain that are involved in depression. And it, depression is not caused by not having enough activity in your left frontal lobe. It's a complex network mm. of areas. It, it involves a complex network of areas of the brain, some of which are overactive, some of which are underactive. You know, some of the thinking and cognitive centers um, tend to be underactive. Some of the more emotional centers as part of those networks tend to be overactive. So um, my belief is that, as I said, when we stimulate this area, We stimulate the nerves that pass through to these networks. And if we can strengthen those connections, we restore a a more normal balance of some of those um, connections. And so we think, at least in part, that we can kind of restore the capacity of these cognitive areas of the brain to perhaps control some other areas of the brain a particular thing called the default mode network which tends to be overactive in people with depression tends to be associated with things like rumination the recurrence of negative thoughts that people with depression can experience and it can perhaps help these executive or control parts of the brain switch off the default mode network and allow sort of more normal or more balanced sort of cognitive function to occur
1: Mm. and when the treatment is being applied, uh, what is measured in terms of those where the electrical impulses go, or it's it's more measured about what uh, which area is being targeted. How how does that sort of work uh, as as the I suppose the the technician um, providing the, the 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 actual treatment.
0: So this has uh, has evolved quite substantially over time. So we you know there's there's been a lot of research. Looking directly, you know, using various forms of neuroimaging at the effects of TMS, but the targeting itself, the targeting itself started off really quite simplistically. It's very easy to work out, you know, if you're looking at someone's scalp and you want to know what is the bit of the brain underneath that you're wanting to target, it's not necessarily all that obvious exactly where you should put the coil. What one thing you can do really concretely is you can work out where the motor or the muscle area of the brain is, because you'll get that muscle twitch if you've got the coil on that spot. And so the original um, idea was to localize that spot and then to measure a certain distance forward to try to get over the right area of the brain. Now, that was good enough. It was certainly good enough to to, um, to do trials that showed that TMS worked, however, if you do that and you, have a, you move the coil forward a sort of a fixed distance, it doesn't take head size into account. Some people have small heads, some people have big heads. And um, we learned over time that we needed the coil to be a little bit further forward and a little bit more lateral, a little bit more to the side than we were getting with that sort of method. And so we, we actually did some studies going back to the late 90s where we would um, do brain MRI brain scans on people and then use those to localise the position of the coil using some sophisticated technology. And we found that that produced better, um, better clinical outcomes. A lot of the more recent work has been done using functional imaging. So what, you do, what we do under these circumstances is somebody goes into a scanner they just lie at rest in an MRI scanner, and the MRI scanner is tracking the blood, effectively the blood flow into areas of the brain, and that helps us to map sort of networks in the brain, because areas of the brain that are communicating with one another a lot will tend to, the blood flow will tend to kind of go up and down in, 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 sync, in, in sync with one another, and so we can kind of map those networks and try to establish where in the frontal cortex we really want to target. And that's given us a better idea of where we should put the coil, although we don't necessarily need to do brain scans in everybody before treatment. We can, we've can we got ways of sort of working out where the coil should sit. But then we're really reliant on um, patients' reports of how they feel. You know, the, the the most important outcome of treatment is not what happens on a brain scan, is that, you know, it's whether somebody feels better or not.
1: Hmm. And has it remained targeted at the left prefrontal cortex that, that that that's been the area that's identified and remained uh, as the target space um, ongoing or has that also developed over time in terms of where
0: so that's still the primary target um a lot of work that we did back going back quite some time now and in fact you know, right back to the early 2000s showed that there was an alternate which was actually to stimulate on the other side of the brain with a different sort of TMS, um, a type of TMS which actually reduces local activity. We, we were doing some brain imaging studies and we found that when patients were engaged in um, tasks, when they were actually doing something in the scanner rather than they were just lying there at rest, the right side of the brain tended to be overactive. So we to, we tested a type of TMS that would reduce brain activity. That worked just as well. Um, so that gave us two options. The right-sided treatment tends to be a little bit better tolerated. You know, most patients tolerate TMS well, but there would be, you know, maybe 3 4% of patients which really struggle with left-sided treatment. So right-sided treatment became a good option for them. And then when we knew that both left and right worked, it was a pretty obvious question to say, well, what happens if we combine them and we do a sort of a type of bilateral treatment? And so we we showed that that worked as well. What somewhat surprisingly we couldn't find, we didn't find, though, was that we had very much thought that the bilateral treatment would be better, um, but we weren't able to show that. We, we seemed that it would work to a greater degree in some people, whereas unilateral might work. Better in others, but it really seems to be rel- relatively equi- equivalent. So we can either treat people on the left, we can treat them on the right, or we can treat them sort of bilaterally, but they all seem to be pretty much pretty much the same. The only other really common, well, somewhat common variation now is a thing called deep TMS. So deep TMS is still targeted on the left, um, but it involves the use of a coil. A sort of more complicated coil, really, that actually sits almost in a bucket that sits over the head. It's a bit like one of those machines you used to see in um, in movies, you know, 1960s American movies, where w- women would sit in a in a hair salon with these great big hair dryer mm-hmm. things over their heads. Um, and it'll, it's got a sort of complex white set of coil windings that are, are able to generate a magnetic field that goes somewhat deeper into the brain. Um, and so that's all used. Um, as well. It goes deeper, but it also stimulates a broader area across the cortical surface. And we're not really sure yet whether its benefit is because it goes deeper, or just because it's, you know, stimulating a larger area of the brain in general. So um, I'd say there's really f- sort of four different sort of targeting or localization methods um, that are used.
1: It's it's interesting that uh, so many different areas of the brain can be targeted and there's there's positive efficacy um for all of those that, that, that's fascinating to to see how obviously different parts of the brain um and as you say are very very they're very complex in terms of how they are connected with every other part of of, of the brain in, in in different ways but that whether it's the left or the right or yeah you know, potentially this the, the the deep tms that there's efficacy for all all methods
0: yeah look i think you know there there have been some approaches that have been tested and that haven't worked and there's probably at least one or two others that i haven't mentioned where there's you know there's suggestions in um uh, studies that they might be effective as well but they just haven't been you know, shown in enough clinical trials to be use you know to be um of benefit that people have adopted them in clinical practice And I I basically think it comes back to what we were saying earlier on, which is that this is a disorder that involves a sort of complex network of areas. And we're really just trying to, trying to find a way to get into that circuitry um, where ideally we would know the best node in these networks to, to target, you know, if there was one that was better than any others, but we certainly seem to be able to tap into a couple of these nodes that allow us to get benefit. And so, um it's you know what we do now is is good it's effective um we still are doing research to see if there are ways to improve efficacy um but you know it's certainly um uh, a, a i suppose good enough and valuable treatment in the way that we currently do it now
1: mm-hmm. and what how was TMIS used in in schizophrenia was that as a treatment base as well, or it was more research-based?
0: It was both. Um, We started off using it to um, test what I would regard as as types of sort of brain plasticity. You hear a lot about sort of neuroplasticity and brain plasticity, but um, there aren't really many concrete ways that we can evaluate what that really means from a physiological perspective. Because these bursts of TMS can change brain activity, it gives us a way to actually test that directly in in individuals by applying a period of TMS and then measuring something before and afterwards to see whether you get that same sort of neuroplastic response. And so, for example, if we're focusing on that that muscle area of the brain that I talked about earlier on, we can apply some pulses to that area, we can measure this the strength of the muscle twitch that we produce. We can then stimulate that with some TMS that's designed to try to make the, that area of the brain more or less excitable. And then we can measure again to see whether that's had the effects that it that it should have. And so that's kind of where we started. But we then did move on to trying to test ways of, of using TMS to, to treat various symptoms. We can't treat schizophrenia as a, as a whole, it again, is a complex disorder. But there are a couple of individual subtypes of symptoms that seem to be able to be potentially successfully treated in some patients. And the one that we focused on in particular was something that had been, um, there had already been some research when we started that was happening at Yale, a psychiatrist by the name of Ralph Hoffman, had, had developed this approach. And it was really trying to target patients who had persistent auditory hallucinations, who continued to hear voices. Um, there, were, there are quite a few people with schizophrenia when they take the various medications that are required for um, that condition who just continue to have these rather, that are often very distressing and troubling um, hallucinations, even despite medication therapy. And um, Ralph Hoffman had come up with the idea that there was a continued overactivity of the sort of auditory memory or auditory processing areas of the brain. The thing that I really liked about this story was um, this wasn't the, um, the I, I suppose, the the main accepted theory of hallucinations. You know, I, if you would go to a, schizophren- a conference of schizophrenia researchers, there was a very trendy uh, popular theory that was quite different to this that most people believed in. But he had this very strong belief that this one area of the brain that was involved, in, and if you could treat that, he could get therapeutic benefit. And he did an elegant number of studies at that in, in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s, and showed you could get therapeutic benefit. And so we became quite um, enthused by this and, and run in, uh, some of these studies as well, and, and also used TMS in clinical practice um, and showed certainly that you could get some really meaningful clinical benefits. It didn't work for lots of patients. But the patients in whom it worked seemed to get really um, could get really quite dramatic benefits, um, which was certainly something that um, you know can be very helpful for some patients.
1: What was the other popular uh, theory at that time about uh, where auditory hallucinations come from?
0: Yeah, look, it's it's still um, you know one of the the leading theories. So the the idea was that that you're misinterpreting inner speech. So inner speech is, you know, the constant narrative that we might have in our own brains as we're sort of talking to ourselves as we go through the day, you know, when we're not necessarily talking to somebody else in the world. And that, that inner speech is generated in areas of the brain more towards the front. In fact, potentially in areas of the brain associated with generating external speech. When I'm talking to you, I'm particularly activating an area in the frontal lobe known as brokers area. In the inferior frontal gyrus, um, and that when we're when our brains are functioning normally, there's a signal that kind of goes back to the hearing or the hearing processing areas of our brain to tell us that that's me. I'm I'm generating this inner speech, and that if that feedback loop is broken, we then start to experience that inner speech as an external voice. We're not recognized that it's our our own speech. Now, that model kind of makes sense in some contexts. There are some people who experience auditory hallucinations who do genuinely experience a kind of a continued sort of commentary, something that you imagine could fit within this model. There's a constant, you know, um, commentary during their day about what's going on. But there are lots of other patients with Um, who experience hallucinations, where that model just doesn't seem to work, where they hear multiple voices, they hear people talking to one another, they might hear crowds of people. And that, to to Ralph, as I understood his thinking and and certainly to to the way I see it, wasn't necessarily consistent with um, this sort of inner speech model and was more consistent potentially with a lack of suppression of auditory memories that, there may be lots of auditory memories that are sort of bubbling to the surface and coming out because we lack activity of the circuits that are meant to suppress, um, suppress those auditory memories. And so the um, aim of the TMS was to try to um, inhibit or suppress that activity. And certainly um, that you know, there is a sort of some validity in that because it, 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 it can work in some
1: people. And and is the inner speech for those experiencing auditory hallucinations, is that often a different voice than their own? Or is it their own voice, but they are misunderstanding it as being not generated by themselves, so to speak?
0: Yeah, the, um, it's not experienced as their own voice. You know, yeah, patients with voice. hallucinations can clearly distinguish between, you know, this is me and, I'm, and you know, a hallucination by definition is experienced as being of somebody else. Um, but the theory goes that because you lack this feedback, that's the reason why you don't recognise it as your own voice. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So then you attribute, to, you attribute it to somebody else because, you know, where else would it come from? If I'm not, if sure. it's not me, it you know, it must be somebody
1: else. Hmm. I, I always uh, understood as being a different voice to, to one's own, uh, but also at least through my clinical experience, it, it's predominantly been of the same gender as the person. I haven't. Seen as much where someone says the the voice is a female voice if they're a male, and vice versa. Um, uh, you know, in some sense, I, f- I feel that sometimes it might be easier to distinguish between the two if it, if it's a completely different gender because there, there's an immediate um, recognition of 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 it being different. But um, but obviously it can be both. But uh, what's is there a primary? Is, is the primary um, under, uh, sorry, primary data that it's of the same gender?
0: I, look, I don't know that. My yeah. clinical experience would be similar to yours, but as I, uh, you know, I think, I think it does come down to this issue of the heterogeneity of what people do experience with hallucinations that, you know, um, there's a subgroup where it is one relatively continued um, single voice, and my guess Uh, You know, my anecdotal experience would be that would be more commonly of the same gender. But in individuals who are hearing multiple voices, there is a lot more variability. Um, And, you know, some people will hear, you know, people talking to one another, and that could be of mixed genders, et cetera, et cetera. And often, um, uh, and as I said, you know, sometimes it might, you know, some patients can describe a sort of a crowd of multiple people talking at once and, and I don't think there's ever, uh, I'm sure there, there is some phenomenological analysis of those characteristics, but I'm not aware too much of the details of that literature.
1: Hmm. And so is, is, is TMS predominantly focused in, in those two areas or is it quite a lot broader now? There's a lot more research uh, occurring because it's, it's starting to gain some more traction. Is it, is it depression and schizophrenia predominantly or we're seeing a, a wider sort of usage now? So
0: depression is by far and away the the main indication, although, you know, um, it's used relatively occasionally for schizophrenia, it hasn't been clinically approved for that use in in most places just because of the nature of the clinical studies that have been done. The second um, application that was approved by the FDA in the US, which tends to be the sort of, you know, the the pathway through which most treatments become um, accepted, was actually for obsessive-compulsive disorder, Um, So that was the sort of second condition. And then most recently, there was a specific type of TMS approved for um, helping patients who were trying to stop smoking on the background of a series of different studies exploring um, uses in addiction. So, um, and there are really, there are studies in the literature exploring the use of TMS in pretty much anything that affects the brain. People have tried it for, you know, for just about any Um, mental health or neurological condition and and there's varying data on different conditions they're just the ones where there's been the the sort of sorts of studies conducted that have been able to satisfy regulatory authorities which you know tend to be you know multi-site trials often done by um, industry because they you know have certain audit capacity and and you know data quality related capacity that's able to convince people like the FDA that um, that you know something should be approved
1: And if we just just focus back onto depression what what does the treatment look like in terms of you know frequency and and duration and the like and and maybe you can then lead into what sort of benefits are people likely to 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 get and and obviously we'll, we'll maybe look at uh what are the, uh, uh, sort of therapeutic gains over time that, that people, you know, at least statistically can, can, can expect.
0: Yeah. So a standard course of treatment, um, the, well, let me start again. The the biggest problem with TMS, I think, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the efficacy and safety and tolerability where the story's all good in a way, the biggest problem with TMS, it's just inconvenient. You have to come into a clinic, usually Monday to Friday, somewhere between four and six weeks. So 20 to 30 treatments is kind of a standard treatment. Over time, how long you need to be in a clinic each day has come down as we've got more, we've got methods that produce brain changes much more efficiently. So you don't need to be there very long, you know, sort of 15 minutes is usually sufficient, but you need to do that on a regular basis over that sort of four to six weeks. You know, if you miss a day here or there, it doesn't seem to matter, but you really want to have the treatment not spread out too much, longer than that when somebody when has treatment, monday to
1: friday we're talking about uh, daily doses 15 yes yeah, it yeah, is yeah. that's right but anywhere between 20 and 40 treatments so uh, 20 to 30 is usually oh, a 20 to 30,
0: also although after 30 sometimes you know somebody might be having treatment would be having treatment you know monday to friday we would often not stop suddenly you know and go from five treatments a week to nothing if somebody's done really well we will often then wean them down so we might have three treatments in the next week and then two and then one and reduce it in that sort of way
1: sure
0: the treatment itself a person sits in a reclining chair this coils sits on their head they will feel a sensation not because they feel anything in their brain but because it stimulates the nerves and muscles in the scalp sometimes around the forehead or even the upper eyelid most people tolerate that really well but it can be uncomfortable and occasionally it will be painful It's sort of strong sort of pulsing sensation. The machine's on for a couple of seconds and then there's a break. And so the sensations, you know, can be strong and then it goes away. In most patients, we start with the intensity quite low to get people used to it and just gradually build up. And if we do that, the vast majority of people can tolerate a course of treatment. Um, occasionally we might need to move, you know, the coil slightly to get if it just happens to be right on a sort of a sensitive spot. But the dropout rates are usually very, very, very low because of that discomfort. But there are there are certainly some people who this sort of pulsing sensation can give them a bit of a sort of a, a dull tens- tension headache afterwards, especially in the first week or so, and they might need to take, you know, Panadol or Ibuprofen uh, after treatment. But again, um, that's fortunately, fortunately rare. If it's going to work, most people don't experience anything straight away. It takes you know, usually a week and a half, maybe two weeks before they're really starting to notice something and then it will just gradually improve across the course of the treatment. Having said that, there's some people who get better quicker, some people in whom it's slower, but, you know, that's sort of the the average, I suppose. And in terms of overall efficacy, in terms of what we really expect, is that we would expect that around half the patients we treat are going to get a really good response, um, maybe another 15 20 percent of patients will get some benefit without it necessarily being life-changing and there'll be about a third of patients in whom it doesn't really um, doesn't really work for and it probably it's probably worth just talking a little bit about the patients who are having this treatment this is tending to be offered to patients who've tried other things first so um, the standard approval in australia for tms is that it gets used in patients who've tried at least two um, antidepressant medications um, of different sorts and or some form of uh, psychological treatment. In reality, that's a good patient group um, to treat, you know, um, but we will often see patients who've had five, six, sometimes 10 or even more medications. And, And it tends to work across that spectrum but like anything the earlier the better you know if we get some if somebody's having treatment who's only had two medications they're probably a little bit more likely to get better than in somebody who's who's tried 10 but we still will use the treatment in people who've tried 10 because we do get some really great success in that group although you're know, probably better off early on and, and as i said we're, we're likely to be looking at sort of about a you know 45 50 55% response rate in that group to compare that to medication if you were to take a third say you've you've had two medications you haven't got better if you're going to have TMS you're going to have a chat you know maybe around a 50 percent chance of getting better if you have a third medication the data suggests that at best you're probably looking at about 15 percent of patients who are going to get better with that third medication you know once you've had a couple of medications the likelihood that medication works drops away pretty quickly, so you know certainly comparatively, it's it, it's a better option um, under those circumstances.
1: It's always so 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 tricky because the the uh, mechanism that we're hoping is is the one that uh, leads to positive therapeutic gain is so hard to to put a finger on. We we, we theorise, we try and understand it, and you know everything still has the same approach which is you know, early intervention is 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 best um similarly you know when i think about it you know hopelessness probably hasn't uh, become as entrenched uh and you know the placebo effect is is a bit stronger and i know that we do this against controls so we you know it it, 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 it makes sense um but it's so it, it's so difficult to understand. Like, what, why is? I I probably imagine a similar thing would would occur where medication is probably most powerful on its first round, second round, third round versus the fourth, fifth, or or or, or sixth. Um, and, and maybe that says something about uh, uh the how the condition is at the, at the time. Um. Uh, and obviously, it kind of, uh, it's similar for for. It sounds like you know, TMS. The earlier we can get in, the better it will be. But at the moment, it it has to. be, there's a criteria that has to be in Australia at least, two medications that have been used prior um, to to going for the TMS option. And what was the other category you said?
0: Well, I was just saying, you know, if if or somebody no. has had a much longer period of illness, many medications. Up. We we certainly wouldn't say don't try TMS. And in fact, you know, when I think back over the years, it's often in the patients who've been unwell for very long periods of time where you get the most noticeable and dramatic, you know, impacts. You know, I've, I've had patients who've been persistently depressed for over a decade, and they and they have treatment, and they and suddenly their depression lifts, and 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 it's just a it's a remarkably satisfying. Um, um thing thing to see uh, i I remember and this this sounds very very strange and this is not obviously the standard but I had one woman tell me um at the end of her course of treatment she says i feel I feel I feel like I'm back to normal but I never really knew what normal was I've only ever felt this good on my second honeymoon and that that raised a whole lot of questions about about her not feeling all that good on her first honeymoon but she was she was basically you know trying to tell a story about you know that she'd had depression most of her life really yeah. and only you know relatively limited periods where she'd been able to feel good and and TMS lifted her out of that and she was able to have sustained sustained benefit the biggest challenge with TMS from a practical perspective as I said it's you know it's inconvenient to have a course of treatment mm. it is like all treatments that we have it's not curative and you know i think it's it's important to say that and so the challenge really then is okay if tms works well what do we do after that how do we make sure people stay well for as long as they possibly can and i fundamentally believe that you know depression is not just a physical illness it's a complex interaction of our social circumstances our, our psychological makeup you know the experiences that we've had during our lives and so, when someone gets better with TMS, um, we can use TMS on a less regular basis to help keep them well. If you have, you know, if you have one treatment a week or one treatment a fortnight, that can really help. But it also opens the door for people to do other things that can make a meaningful difference in their lives. Mm-hmm. You know, people when they're depressed often are stuck psychologically. You know, they can't get out of those those depressive, uh, you know, the, the, depressive thinking. But they're also stuck in other ways. It's very difficult when you're in you know, substantial depression to make the changes in your life that that you know, you might need to be in a healthier relationship with the people around you to to you know get out of a dysfunctional relationship to get into a better job whatever that might be even to establish healthy living patterns. You know we know that that mindfulness you know practicing regular mindfulness is good for you but when you're depressed you know sitting down and trying to to engage in meditation is extraordinarily difficult um it's a lot easier to do once you're better and once you're well we know that doing regular mindfulness and regular exercise are things that are going to help keep you well longer term so you know whereas you know tms can for some people have really profound effects and it can contribute to them staying well. It should I I would never say it's the be all and the end or it's not the only part of long-term um wellness. Long-term wellness is using an opportunity that people might get with TMS to try to then um you know put changes in place that can be um gonna help someone's well-being in the longer term.
1: I think it's important because there's as as a consumer of of any health product most people will naturally just move to that model of it's supposed to cure it's supposed to fix it's supposed to you know it becomes that symptom removal uh, or symptom reduction rather than an aid Uh, and and in there becomes part of part of the problem where you know i've seen yeah, way too many times, whether it's even in my practice or, or for example with introduction of medication, someone will say it worked and then yeah, the next time they say it didn't work you know and, and I know even in my clinical practice the moment that a client says it worked, I cringe you know, at least internally because I, I know that that's not what we're trying to do. We're, we're trying to improve function. Not symptom reduction because you know there is no medication that says, yeah, here's an antidepressant that will target that thought around loneliness or uh, that you are, you know, uh, not good enough and you're hopeless. Um, There's no medication that does that, and 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 similarly, I don't imagine that TMS claims to 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 do anything um, of a similar nature. We're trying to do. Uh, uh, some sort of functional improvement rather than being targeted at specifically being able to achieve anything in in, in particular, because it, it cannot claim that um, it, it's just impossible to have any chemical that targets a specific thoughts, you know, or a, a specific feeling ongoing, ongoing it might, might temporarily, but uh, like, like everything, it, it, it's um, going to have a uh, either a tolerance that will build up or um, it, just can't be applied over and over and over again. Um, you, you mentioned that TMS uh, might need to be adjusted in terms of how it can be tolerated. Is is that 15 minute mark the most regular? Does that sort of dial up uh, for some patients? Does it dial down for, for others? Is it usually on a daily basis for that six to four weeks? How would that assessment sort of take place?
0: Yeah, so um, the way we do TMS has changed over time. So the s- forms of stimulation that target the left side of the brain uh, have dramatically decreased in the amount of time it takes to actually administer the treatment. So when I first started, we, we had protocols that would last about 40 minutes. That came down gradually to 20 minutes. And then the dramatic change has been the introduction of of a thing called theta burst stimulation, which is a more complex pattern of, of pulses that was originally shown in sort of new neuroscience experiments to have more potent effects on, on, the, on nerve cells and their plasticity. And a standard theta burst stimulation treatment, the actual application of the pulses only takes three minutes. You know, you're in, it takes you 15 minutes to come in and get things set up and so forth, but the treatment is very brief itself. Now, you're getting lots of pulses during that three minutes, and so it can be fairly intense. And as I said, there are some people who struggle to tolerate that. Worst case scenario is if somebody really struggles with left-sided treatment, is we'll we'll occasionally, I'm talking to maybe one or two people out of every hundred, we'll switch them to right-sided treatment. Because the way treatment's done on the right is pretty much tolerated by everybody. It's a bit slower. It takes 15 to 20 minutes to do, but they're just getting one pulse every second. It's like it's like a clock ticking and most, and really, are, you know, people tolerate that pretty much universally. Whereas with the left side of treatment, you're getting lots of pulses in a very short um, period of time squashed together and effectively what it's producing in your scalp is a bit of a, like a muscle cramp because the muscle's not really getting a chance to relax for a couple of seconds. and, and, in the scalp, that's usually okay. The probably the worst sensation that some people will describe is if if they're getting a, um, a stimulation in their forehead or in their upper eyelid. If you you know try to imagine getting a sort of a brief muscle cramp in your eyelid, it's a kind of strange and, and sometimes um, unpleasant sensation. But um, Usually that's, as I said, dependent on exactly where the coil is and some small movement around of the position can can alleviate that. Sometimes we can drop the intensity of the pulses a little bit. And as I said, if we're really struggling, we can we can switch to the other side.
1: And in what, in what sort of scenarios might there be longer exposure or shorter exposure? Is, is it predominantly based on how the client responds? And so it, it's client-led saying... I'm experiencing this. I, I I feel comfortable. We can maintain that, or you know, uh, let's let's try for a longer exposure because I'm not getting what I'm sort of hoping for, or we, we change it because you know it might even be less that that might be more more uh, uh, effective. How, how how does a clinician make that make that assessment, or is it a fairly a uh, uh, Understood protocol that needs to be maintained at the present moment while more research is being done.
0: So there's there's two parts of that. I'll speak to the clinical and I'll speak to some of the things that we're now doing with research. From a clinical perspective, we don't tend to change the dose that's given on a daily basis. So we wouldn't, you know, double the number of pulses or or anything like that, mainly because there is some complexity about the effects of these pulses. If you continue the trains beyond a certain amount of time, there's some questions about whether or not you, the brain starts to adapt to them in in different ways. So we might extend the duration of the treatment itself. You know, somebody might get to 30 treatments and turn around and say, hey, I'm doing well, but I still, you know, I'm not quite there. Can I have another five treatments or something like that? So from a clinical perspective, we might, change the dose in terms of the number of treatments, but not necessarily what we do on a, on a daily basis. From more of a research perspective, we are certainly exploring whether we can use higher doses or different doses to get greater effects. And we're particularly, we've been doing research now for a number of years investigating what we call accelerated TMS. So the idea here is, is if we, can we give you a bigger dose but for a fewer days to try to make it more convenient for you, so you don't have to come in as many times, and and the holy grail here is also can we get you better a lot quicker? So instead of it taking two, three, four weeks for TMS for work, can we get you better in say one week? You know, can we use and could this then become a treatment for people who are extremely distressed who need a very urgent treatment response and might will you be able to give a very high dose of treatment, say in a week, um, and get that response? And so we've done three or four different clinical trials exploring these sorts of accelerated protocols. Our research to date has basically shown that, yes, we can probably do things more efficiently, so get away with fewer days. It's still somewhat inconvenient on those days and so it's not quite at the stage where we're integrating that into our clinical practice yet because if you've got a busy clinic and you're treating lots of people across the day and then you have somebody who's going to have one of these accelerated protocols that needs multiple treatment slots in that day you're going to treat them several times it becomes hard to schedule that and so there's just some you know logistical things we're working through there has been a very promising Um, finding come out of a place in the US but I'm still a little bit guarded in in our expectancy around this which is a protocol that what I would regard as extremely high dose so they're effectively doing three times the dose continuously and then repeating that 10 times in a day so it's effectively 30 times what you would get in a single treatment in a day and then doing that for five days in a row So it's much, much higher in terms of the dose than anyone's done previously. The practical problems with that is that when they do it 10 times, so they'll do this, they'll do a three-dose treatment, which takes, you know, a little bit under 10 minutes. then they repeat, then the patient has a break for 50 minutes and then it's repeated. So each cycle takes an hour. So the treatment in the day takes 10 hours. So there aren't many clinics that are even open for 10 hours. You know, um, yes. to 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 do that, let alone you. Know, do you have to stop most of your other patients having treatment so you can do one patient with this approach? So there's some challenges with that. We we are at the moment applying for a grant to try and see if we can drop that gap from 50 minutes down to 15 minutes. Because then, if you if you could do it in that way, you you have a two and a half hour treatment rather than a 10 hour treatment. That would be much more practically useful. The really exciting thing that has been shown in the preliminary studies anyway, with that approach and they are preliminary, very small numbers. It's only been demonstrated by the one group at Stanford yet. Nobody's replicated it yet. Um, But what they, what they found in two very uh, early pilot studies is, is dramatic response rates. It's a very high rates of response and patients getting better quickly. So, you know, within that week, patients getting better and that's, faster than any other antidepressant treatment we, we know even you know electroconvulsive therapy which is reserved for you know the most urgent and, and most critically unwell patients takes longer than a week to get patients better when it when it works well um, and so there's certainly something in this i i don't I'm not sure that that protocol that they've developed at stanford yet is the, is the right way to go but if we can refine that get it down to something that could be done in a couple of hours and we could be getting patients better in a week, that would be you know, a really substantial breakthrough that, that could you know, make a difference, not just for patients that are in the community who can afford to wait you know, three or four weeks to get better, but even patients in urgent um, hospital settings where we need to get a reaction response very quickly because you know, they're very suicidal or they've, they're so unwell that they've stopped eating and drinking, um, that would become a real, um, a real bonus under those circumstances.
1: Well, what's it like being a researcher in something like this where there's just so many unknowns? And I, I, I recognize in all research, I mean, always working with unknowns and that's why exciting. But uh, in something like this, it, it sounds like, I mean, the ethics would be very difficult to get around and you could, I bet, speak much, much uh, uh, more um, widely on, on that than I can. But I imagine there's so much opportunity to to look at, you know, what would be the ideal framework if it did work and then obviously taking a shot at it. It, It's kind of hard because as a starting point, it might sound scary that it's three times the regular dosage and I don't know any of the medical sort of of space. Um, But one day that might be adopted and kind of not be something that anyone's concerned about. But I imagine that any time you're going up, like in lots of things, exposure to anything, you know, the upward uh, uh, um, trajectory is always a, a greater concern. We, we we tend to be less concerned about going downward. Um, but what's it like, sort of thinking about and imagining how how could this one day be applied in 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 the sort of mainstream? Because uh, there's there's opportunity to to do this try to also consider how does it hit the ground, you know, like going out and doing, doing, you know, 15 minutes daily, um, you know, for six weeks is, is is a very difficult commitment for a lot of people. It's also very time, you know, labor intensive. You've got to go out and train a whole lot of people and it's not 15 minutes. It's actually by the time they get in and, Register and sort of set them all up and hook them up, etc., etc. Cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> I don't know what the turnaround is, but you know, might be half an hour, might be forty-five minutes, might be an hour for 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 that treatment. Um, but what's it like, sort of thinking? What are the applications, and 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 how how can we bring this into a if something hits the ground a little bit more uh, amenably for for how a practice works or how a hospital works, etc.
0: Yeah, look, it's a it's a it's a really good question. Um, I'll just go back to the one of the things you said right at the, at the start of the question, which was around um, your dose increasing over time. And we've kind of been fortunate in some ways, um, although it's been frustrating in others, that the the pathway of development of TMS has been a very long and, and 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 somewhat incremental one. So if you look at the dose that was used back in the late 1990s, it was tiny compared to what we're using now, but that wasn't an overnight change. We gradually increased the number of pulses, the intensity, and gradually saw that things were safe over time. But there have been some very big steps along the way, and this one that I just was describing before is potentially one of those large steps. You know, we, one of the things that I've, the main part of your question, though, which is really I think about building in consideration about the clinical application to what we develop um, is I think actually really important and often just generally speaking something that kind of gets relatively ignored in in normal research you know where researchers are sitting in ivory towers doing their their research studies and it's it's sometimes very easy to forget about well what's this going to actually look like in real world practice you know I I was I, I suppose somewhat fortunate that you know we were doing clinical trials, some of our clinical trials and some of our work in a clinical setting very early on. And and by, you know, the mid-2000s, I was running a clinical program in a hospital in Melbourne. So as we were developing new ways of doing TMS, we would often try them out in the clinical setting fairly early on. And I think that that shaped the way that I viewed, viewed this, which was always that if you're going to do something in a research setting... Or in a clinical trial you you need to know that this is going to be useful useful in the future otherwise you're just wasting you're wasting your time but you're also what uh, i think even more importantly wasting the time of the patients who are giving up their time to participate in that research and so you you need to have at least thought ahead towards what some of those mechanisms might be so at the moment we're just about to start a new clinical trial here at, at anu where we we are testing a very different technological innovation. You know, there's been a lot of technological innovation over the years about targeting, and we talked about that right at the start. But one thing that that there's been very little technological innovation around is about individualising the frequency of the pulses themselves. So there's a pattern to the pulses that we apply. They're applied at specific frequencies. And the language of the brain is, in many ways, Um, what we call frequencies of oscillations. That the ways different areas of the brain talk to one another is by um, activity in those areas of the brain um, interacting at particular frequencies of of the firing of nerve cells. So um, two parts of the brain well, we know that they're talking to one another because the nerve cells are firing at the same frequency. And so the frequency of neural oscillations or neural firing is a really critical part of brain function. And we're administering TMS pulses at specific frequencies, but we've never really personalized that. We don't do an EEG and measure someone's brain activity, their brain, the, the way their nerve cells fire, and then use that to guide the way that we do our TMS pulses. And we think that could be a really powerful way of improving response to treatment. So we're going to be testing that in a clinical trial, but that then is introducing another layer of complexity. And we have to be thinking You know, even before we do that, well, if this does work, how could that be used in clinical practice? How could we develop ways that a standard clinic could implement these methods? Um, Because if it's too technically sophisticated, nobody's going to be able to do it, or there's going to be too much margin for error. So, you know, so one of my, uh, the people who works in my team over time has worked on methods to, to take the EEG signal and effectively just to clean it so it can be analysed automatically. You know, five, ten years ago when we were doing EEG studies, you know, we would have a PhD student doing an EEG study and they would go and sit somebody in a, in a chair and put these EEG caps on with these electrodes, record their brain activity. They would then have to go and spend several hours manually going through these EEG traces and removing things like if somebody blinked, when the recording was happening, just the muscle activity from the blinking would cause a big artifact on the EEG trace. And they would manually go through and have to cut these these eye blinks out. And they would would literally spend hours for every subject. It was very tedious work. And so um, one of our team members has gone through and developed Um, automatic algorithms that can just take the EEG data and clean it and process it and, and test it that's reliable. You don't lose anything meaningful from the signal so that we're starting to think about, okay, if this approach works, could we develop a fully automated system that patient could come into the doctor's office, put a cap on, data would be recorded, it would be processed, and it would automatically generate a signal for the TMS machine to know you know what frequency do we need to apply if we can't do that we might as well not do the clinical trial in the first place because we're not going to be able to actually implement it if our new you know new way of doing things turns out to be better there's no point of being better if 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 it can't work in in the real world
1: it's such a a balance and a tension between designing protocols and being informed by previous data and clinical knowledge with what could potentially land in the real world and 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 not only that how does a community respond to what we think uh this new protocol might look like you know and it, it's so fascinating i i always think about the iter- iterative process of running a you know, a psychology practice. So many thousands of changes have gone into trying to set it up in its current form, as you know. I'm sure your your uh, faculty has has done for for many many decades, trying to just do the simplest of things. And it's hard to predict how something will be received. You know, and and that in and in all of itself is so psychologically driven, where. You know, we can we can dismiss something, thinking that it won't be received, or go, oh, this would be fantastic, and and put in so much research only that there's some sort of uh, challenge that happens on the on the ground that that it's it's unforeseeable, but we're trying to kind of think so far ahead of going, how is this going to be received by whether it's the clinic or the clients, you know, how how does making how does empowering a client add value or subtract value when they can say as to potentially, you know, how a dose might, might look, you know, does it remove the trust in the therapy or or does it actually improve the trust in the therapy and say it's more individualized to me? It's, these are just completely unknown. Um, and, the, and the technology it,
0: it, is really, in, in some ways it's, I don't know if the right word's dangerous, but, you know, I, I have cons- I have real concerns that, Um, it's possible to sell these sorts of technology, these sorts of treatments based on the technology, you know, in ways that can be really misleading. You know, there are, there are already examples of clinics out there, you know, promoting their forms of TMS as being better or because they're high tech, because they are using imaging or they are using EEG in ways that are just not supported by real-world evidence. Mm-hmm. You know, they've, they've got black boxes, they, you know, do EEGs, and they say this is going to be personalised, or they, they're they doing imaging, um, and, you know, this is in America. Particularly, you know, it's a, it's a very common thing in America, but it's happening here as well. Like, you know, there are a number of um, clinics that have popped up and they're advertising the use of TMS for conditions where, it's just not proven, you know, applications in children, applications in adults for conditions where, you know, there just isn't the clinical data or where the science is used to, you know, the technology is used to create a, a, an impression of, of science. You know, you, know you, can, you can do a brain scan and it's got some colourful blobs and you can show it to a patient and say, you know, look, here's this blob. This is why our treatment should work. Um, and that can be really misleading. And I, 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 you know, as someone who's who, you know, we've done clinical trials over the years that fail, you know, that we're, the things we do that don't work. I almost actually think that it's, uh, you know, that if you do research and things don't fail, there's something wrong because not everything you, you know, you try to test will, will work. There'll be, you know, one treatment shouldn't work for everything. Um, or it shouldn't work good for everybody, you know. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think there's a real danger that, that, that we find the right balance between making sure that we genuinely test things in comprehensive research and evaluate it, but then also present it to people in a way that um, is honest and straightforward. But again, also, you know, we, we, we shouldn't be um, trying to convince anybody that, these things are miraculous cures that they're that you know this is everything tms like any technology if you know any technology that's good is going to be part of the solution it 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 fits part of their journey you know um recovery from depression is a journey this might unstick you but it's not going to solve the social problems it's not going to solve your economic problems it might help you get to a point where you can start working again and that's wonderful it might get you to a point where you can start to reevaluate what your relationships are um, and so forth, but it's not everything. And, and, and technology is often presented, you know, as this sort of miraculous solution. And and I think that's really dangerous and something we have to guard against.
1: It's, it's a problem in psychology because any, any time there's any intervention, naturally the hope is of positive change (laughs) and psychology appreciates as as psychiatry does as well is that hope needs to be moderated otherwise it can be problematic as well if someone is you know high with hope um you know there's going to be a high opportunity for for uh, disappointment similarly you don't want to have no hope because then you won't try it. I mean that 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 in essence is is what you know learned hopelessness can can look like by um uh, uh, Seligman that we've all all understood and learnt it's a balance but yeah as you say there aren't always um uh the same insights by all of the organizations that they can sell it in a um in a more curative way and that, I suppose that, that that's why ARPA is around and regulation and like but uh it's hard because the choice of language can, can be very gray and, and and people are desperate for for some sort of improvement for their loved ones for themselves and anytime intervention comes in, it, it, it's very, very, um, very much something that hope you know builds around. Where would you, um, uh, where where would you say is a good place to to start for people who you know are listening to this and and thinking about TMS as potentially being an option for them or a loved one? Where can they find out more? What would you know? What are reputable places to? Consider, um, uh, uh, you know, researching, going to, speaking to to clinicians about that that you've at least that you know of.
0: So there there is good information um, out there. The um, the Royal Australian New Zealand College of Psychiatrists has um, a variety of information sources that are accessible through their website. There is a thing called the Clinical TMS Society, which is a predominantly American but it is an international society that produces some very good information for patients. That's the Clinical TMS Society, C T M S S. And there are lots of other sources. There's some, I've got some general links and things on my website, which is paulbfitzgerald.com. Um, people are welcome to come and have a look at the TMS information there. Um, it can be challenging in talking to clinicians about TMS because even though it's been around for quite a long time, there's still a lot of ignorance um, around about TMS, um, and so often it requires patients to do their own um, to, to do their own research. Um, the, other, the the clinical service that I'm associated with, which is the um, Monarch M-O-N-A-R-C-H, Monarch Mental Health Group we've got some hopefully very um, accurate and and useful um, information on our website as well and that's also can be found through uh, TMS Clinics Australia so if people um, follow any of those information sources there's certainly plenty of good reputable information out there and as I said you know there's been 50, 60, 70 different clinical trials evaluating the use of TMS we know a lot Um, you know there are still gaps and we're still working on it but there's certainly lots of good information out there
1: for patients and what are some of the myths that that you would uh, like to dispel that that you commonly hear you know whether it's from clinicians whether it's from 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 clients I mean there are naturally you know concerns that people bring to the table what are some of the common myths that that would be you know useful for people to know um, or, or to have information around when considering you know TMS
0: look probably the biggest one is, The biggest concern often patients have is, is, you know, understandable confusion about where TMS sits in terms of electroconvulsive therapy. You know, most people have heard of ECT um, and are quite anxious about ECT. You know, ECT can be a very effective treatment, but there are, you know, lots of issues with having to have a general anesthetic and some of the side effects. Um, And so it's important for people to realise TMS is just a very, very different sort of treatment. There's no general anaesthetic. You're coming into a, a, a clinic, you know, that could be just in, you know, in the local shopping mall or your local um, uh, uh, practice very clo- close to where you live. Um, you're not asleep. You're awake throughout the procedure. There's no anaesthetic. And perhaps most importantly, um, there's no adverse effects of TMS on memory. You know, people might have heard that ECT can produce memory impairment. In fact, TMS is... Quite the opposite If anything, it tends to be pro or good for your sort of general brain function and memory. So much so now that we're actually doing clinical trials, testing the use of TMS in people with memory problems like Alzheimer's disease. And we've got preliminary data to suggest that TMS can actually improve memory in, in people with Alzheimer's disease. So that's um, a, you know, a, a really important um, aspect and probably the biggest concern that, that patients can't have when they're, when they're coming to us
1: uh it's a scary one for many because anytime you start looking at the brain and obviously we've yeah. all seen the footage um you know the Hollywood footage for for you know ICT um, in particular um that uh, uh sorry ECT my apologies um uh, that you know were very frightening and obviously the early days in something like that you know look, looked quite quite um frightening um <laughs> Uh, and so you know it 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 it's something that naturally is, is of concern um i mean there are people well you know there's lots of people out there that that even are concerned about any type of exposure you know whether it's chemicals radio frequencies mobile phones there, there's all sorts of things that 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 uh, uh i think you know healthy skepticism is 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 important um and you know hence reaching out, out to you to try and understand Hey, you know what? What is TMS? I don't know anything about it, and 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 um, trying to uh, educate myself, find out a little bit more, uh, and also hear from someone who does the research and 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 has has used it in practice versus someone you know hearing it only from their clients. Um, you know, they, you don't get any any. Uh, of the other side uh to it but it, it it's lovely to, to talk to you today and, and find out so much so much more about it what are your hopes for TMS for the future what where do you um see it going you know what's 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 uh the next step that, that you uh see that TMS will will uh achieve you know you're obviously in the in in the space there are breakthroughs that everyone's hoping for where do you see it sort of going in the next, say, five to 10 years?
0: So I think there's, to my mind, there's probably three or maybe four different answers to that question, um, all of which um, I'm enthused about and excited about. You know, we've touched on one or two of those already. You know, one is about trying to come up with some of these more efficient and, and um, potentially, you know, very quick-to-work forms of TMS. Um, related to that is by increasing the degree to which we personalise the treatment, we can get better clinical outcomes. You know, our ultimate goal there is that you're know, using potentially imaging and EEG, we could come up with something that's just highly personalised and, and therefore very, very effective, and that's what we'll be testing in this new study starting in the next month or so here. Um, the third thing that we need a much better evidence base around is the long-term. We know we've got great long-term safety data. Um, TMS has now been around for decades and decades, and so we're not concerned about that. But the use of TMS as a maintenance treatment, I've seen many patients, you know, being being able to stop their medication and just use TMS as the way to stay well for years. And I've I've seen patients using TMS for well over a decade. But the research data supporting that long-term use just isn't nearly good enough and so it's not funded for that so we need we need that data and then probably the the last area that I'm excited about but which is a little bit tangential from TMS is the use of similar but somewhat different technologies to try to develop what I would call home use treatments because as we've talked about a couple of times you know the biggest problem with TMS no matter how efficient we get it is you have to come in and have it Mm. and you know we uh, we've spent a lot of time and effort trying to develop clinical services that can be out in the suburbs and so forth but there's never going to be a convenient you know a, a, a form of tms that's as convenient as taking a tablet at home and so the version of tms i suppose that takes us close much closer to that is can we develop a device that somebody could use at home in the comfort of their own lounge room or bedroom that would produce similar benefits and that would, one, be obviously much more efficient, cheaper, accessible to people in a variety of areas, including in rural and remote settings, and also potentially something that's much more convenient for the longer term. Um, I don't think it's, you know, people are, are trying to build very small TMS machines to give people to take home. I don't think that's a solution. I think I'll and, and I think the solution is going to be similar, but different technologies. There's a thing called transcranial direct current stimulation which is very small box simple electrodes seems to produce depression benefits but i think the effects aren't nearly as strong as with tms we're really focusing our research on a third type of technology a thing called transcranial alternating current stimulation which again can be administered through a very small portable device some simple electrodes on the head And it uses what it sounds like. It's an alternating current. It goes back and forth like a TMS pulse does. And we think, but we don't know yet because we haven't proven it, that we can develop a form of that that, again, is personalized, involves recording the brain function and using that to develop a personalized stimulation signal. And we're hopeful that that is a way to potentially develop something that People in the future could use at home um, as you know a much cheaper, much more convenient alternative. But that's something very much for the future, and and we're you know relatively early on the on the journey of developing that form of technology.
1: It's exciting to 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 hear about the research that's going on, and and I'm always enthused and 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 inspired. Not that I do any of that, but just inspired in life. Um, that that there are other options that there are uh new possibilities coming up and something like you know home-based tms machine you know alongside other many other approaches is is exciting because it just adds another uh another you know leg leg to the table that that makes it more stable um and if it works for some then fantastic you know uh, i i i think that um Trying to make all of these things commercially viable is, is you know, also another great, great challenge. And um, like many things that are absolutely uh, fantastic and founded in research, it's still very difficult to actually get them to land. Um, and and how that might look, even though everything, you know, from a conversational point of view, my my brain's firing like like matter. You know, in my mind, I'm like, yeah, and you could see your your TMS clinician and they could download, you know, what you need onto your particular box. And so you could go out and have this tailored thing without needing to go get anything changed because technology, technological advancement, et cetera, et cetera. But the complexities, you know, it's easy to just say, you know, you can get so excited, but uh, you know, it's got to land, it's got to hit the ground and, 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 um, you know, have you know all the, the approvals and the like so we don't have you know cowboys uh running the show so so to speak um and and potentially do harm uh to, to to others so um fantastic thank you so much paul for 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 your time you've been incredibly generous and and um i hope that you continue to get plenty of funding uh that uh the that the school continues to to push for these things to to understand how tms can can be you know, valuable in whatever form it is, whether it's the you know repetitive, whether it's the deep, um, you know, the alternating, the the, the the direct current. It, it actually doesn't matter which one. It, it, the the outcome what everyone's looking for, and and uh, obviously safety as a, you know, a important um, uh, appreciation as well, so that it can have adoption rather than that that fear response. And I imagine fear is a big one at the moment. Um, that is always going to be challenging to, to to overcome but uh yeah thank you so much i appreciate your time and appreciate your work um and 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 that that's for you and your colleagues as, as well um i don't think researchers often get enough get enough um uh, cred for for the time and energy and effort they put in because you guys you know when it's when it's coupled with with practitioners uh you know are the backbone uh you know guiding what we should all be you know considering and thinking and 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 Obviously, you know, practicing so yeah. Thank you, Paul.
0: Oh, look, you're most welcome. It's been a pleasure to to talk about all these issues. And, you know, they are they're important. You know, this is a an extraordinarily common problem that, that people are faced with, you know, not just depression itself, but you know, depression that is affecting people that's not getting better with other treatments. We just know there are just, you know, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people, you know, struggling with these issues. And so it's important to, for us to be developing new, uh, new options, but there's no point us developing options if people can't find out about them and learn about them. And, and you know, it's only through mechanisms like this that people are going to, you know, learn about what's available and 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 be able to make informed choices, which is ultimately what it's all about. You know, we we're not replacing things; we're trying to add to the options available to to individuals, and so so that they've got choice, they can understand and and select what might work for them
1: and that's it's a beautiful way to, to to say it as well paul because that that that's goes to the heart of how people think they they think we're trying to replace rather than no we're adding we're adding value this is this is a value add in the world of psychology and and, and support and health for 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 people um so yeah, i think it's a nice nice place to um uh end, end our conversation and yeah once again thanks paul
0: You're
1: most welcome. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review, subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out, I'd love to hear from you.